And so we'll be looking at two more really short little parables this morning, um, but I'll stretch them out over a long period of time for you. Um, but I think they offer, they're sort of two lenses on the same thing, which I think is quite interesting. They sort of allow a, a kind of rich two-dimensional view of the same sort of thing. Um, and so we're, we're looking particularly at these as they appear in Luke's Gospel. They also uh, are in, in Matthew's Gospel side by side um, in chapter 13. And the mustard seed parable is also found in, in Mark chapter 4, but the other one, the, the parable of, of the leaven, isn't. Um, so this morning, but we're particularly going to look at the ones in Luke's Gospel. And just to give a little bit of context to these um, parables, Luke's Gospel has sort of more of a narrative um, approach than, than Matthew, and uh, particularly Matthew, uh, Matthew's Gospel. Um, and it has a travelogue sort of feel to it. So often you'll read like Jesus went to this town and then da 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 and then he kind of fires off a story and then wraps it up with, and then he went to a new city and sort of he weaves these stories along the journey sort of thing. Um, a great example, um, and he also grounds, so which I think grounds the stories in reality really well, like they're really quite tangible. Um, I think a great, great example of this um, is the way if you compare the Beatitudes in Matthew and Luke's Gospel, Matthew will say, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, whereas Luke goes, blessed are the poor, and he kind of, he makes it very, very grounded, uh, very tangible. And, and, he, and that kind of concern for the poor is particularly strong in Luke's Gospel. He has a real thing for, for outsiders, for Gentiles, um, for tax collectors, for, for social outcasts. Um, he emphasises Jesus' birth being in, in, in Nazareth, in, in backward Nazareth, the, the place where people said, oh, no, no good can ever come out of that place. And he uses a lot of outcasts as heroes, so Samaritans and uh, prostitutes, tax collectors... He also includes women a lot more in his story than, than the other Gospels. Um, you'll find in this, uh, what he's done here with these two parables, you have uh, one, of the, one of the actors is a, is a man and the next one is a woman. Uh, and Luke particularly does that. He tends to couple two stories together, uh, one with a woman and one with a man, which I think is quite interesting. Um, so that, that's sort of the macro context. And if we zoom in a little bit more, they appear in, in chapter 13, which is sort of, midway through Jesus' travels through, through Galilee, which is sort of the reject part um, of Israel. Um, and there's typically been um, two quite different interpretations of these parables. And so I just want to sketch one of them out for you before I, I um, sort of show you the one that I, that I sort of like to take. Um, and the, this common one is, is to view them quite negatively. Um, and so the mustard seed... Uh, is, is the church. It was meant to be a small herb, but it grew up, it was corrupted and became institutionalised into a big, a big tree. Um, and then birds, which are sometimes symbolised as evil in the Bible, come and nest in it. And so you've got this picture of a church that was supposed to be small, grows up to this huge institutionalised thing, and evil comes and, and rests and lives among it. Uh, in a similar way, the parable of the leaven uh, is sort of interpreted. It's it, uh, eleven throughout the Bible is typically viewed as a negative thing. Uh, think of like the Passover where they had to get rid of it all, or Jesus warning against the leaven of the Pharisees. He used to say, uh, and so um, this interpretation sort of takes that, that that a little bit of leaven spoils the whole loaf. Once it's in there, and so the church or the dough or the the flour is the church, and once a little bit of leaven gets in there, it spreads through the whole thing, and you can't ever get it out. Um, so that, but, and while I'm happy to go into this more at a later time if, if anyone's interested, um, but I just wanted to highlight that not everyone views these parables in the same way. They can get read different ways. 
Um, but I do find those interpretations to be a bit inadequate um, because Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, um, life as, as, as God intends it. The kingdom of God isn't the church, it's not the same thing. Um, the church often falls short of the kingdom of God, or at least my church does. Um, in my mind, at least, it makes no sense that God would say, the kingdom of God starts off like a small mustard seed, but then watch out because the kingdom of God has a tendency to become institutionalised and corrupted. Or, uh, the kingdom of God is, is a small bit of evil, like leaven, um, that eventually permeates everything. And once the kingdom of God is in society, it's a nasty problem and uh, it's impossible to get out, so make sure the kingdom of God doesn't get in to society, let alone your churches. Um, maybe that makes sense, maybe that doesn't. I'm happy to chat about that more after if you're keen. Um, but I, I want to suggest that these two parables are, are actually more about the unlikely nature of the kingdom of God, um, that it tends to show up and roll out in ways that we don't typically expect or it operates along lines that our society doesn't typically operate along. Um, I think that's the fundamental message that Jesus was trying to get across to this religious leader in the synagogue who had missed the whole point of the thing. He had become so wrapped up in his religious culture um, that he was unable to see or recognise or celebrate that a restorative act of God had happened right before his eyes. Um, so here's a religious leader who knew his Torah, his law, inside out. He knew the prophets intimately and that with their story of a future day of restoration. Um, but he was so caught up in doing the right thing that he couldn't acknowledge um, or celebrate the healing of a woman who had been crippled for 18 years. He couldn't, he couldn't get into the celebration of that. All he could do was point out the various man-made laws that had been broken along the way. Um, he was indignant and angry rather than joyful. Uh, he was unable to handle the unusual, unlikely, unstructured, dynamic kind of nature of the Kingdom of God. And so Jesus offers two short parables to him and I think to us, uh, to remind us that God doesn't always work along the lines and the patterns that we expect, or that we would choose if we were Him. Uh, this is a repeated issue for, for Jesus' disciples, particularly if you read Mark's Gospel, they're just getting hammered all the time for not getting who He was and the way that He operated. Um, and I think that's also been a repeated issue for the church throughout history. Um, and so it's good for us to reflect on the unlikely nature of the Kingdom of God this morning through these two parables. Because the Kingdom of God isn't like the Kingdom of Humanity. Uh, it's not like the Kingdom of Military Power or Political Power or, or the Kingdom of Liberal Economics. Um, it has unexpected beginnings, it has unusual methodology and it has really unlikely outcomes. And I want us to have a quick reflection on each of those this morning. The, the unexpected starting place, the unusual methodology and the unlikely outcomes of the Kingdom of God. A good three-point sermon. That's what I was taught. Um, so we'll start with the insignificant beginnings. The Kingdom of God, God's way of, of ruling, it has uh, His way of, of starting things off, of kicking things off, uh, includes a preference for insignificant beginnings. Um, if we're planning out a, a venture, if we're planning to take over the world, if we're hoping to change the world, um, if we're wanting to do something really big, we usually look for big people. People with big influence, people with big money, uh, people with big networks or power or big energy. But God doesn't, and it's not that His plan isn't big. I mean, you read 
Colossians 1 and he talks about the restoration of everything. You can't sort of get a bigger goal uh, than that. He has a huge plan for the world and it's going to be a massive, under- and it is a massive undertaking. But he has a preference for recruiting the losers to do that job. Think about Abraham and Sarah. That, that they, were, they would have been really, if they were in our culture, they would have been really powerful people. They had lots of money and lots of assets. Those things rank pretty high in our culture. If you've got those things, you'll go a long way. But in their culture, they were seen as cursed by God because they had no children. They were, they were worthless and nothing. And not just worthless, but they were cursed. And God takes this old, shriveled, childless, useless couple and He says, you two will be perfect for what I've got in mind. I'm going to build a massive nation and I want you who have no children, you are the kind of people that I need to kick that off. It doesn't really, it's not sort of along the lines that we typically operate, I think. Think about the oppressed slaves in Egypt. Think, the, uh, think about the overlooked son of Jesse who had to be fat, fetched from the back, is it paddock or paddock? You can argue about that later. From the back paddock so that he could become the king after God's own heart. Think about Jesus' choice of birthplace, the suburb that people shook their heads at and said, nothing ever good comes out of that place. Our tendency is to recruit the best, uh, the strongest, the most attractive, the most intelligent, the most qualified. And God says, give me your leftovers, give me your lookedovers, give me your Samaritans, your social outcasts, the people you don't want on your team, because they're perfect for the things that I have planned. Give me your mustard seeds, says God, because you've got no idea what mustard seeds can become. God has a preference for starting His work amongst the insignificant folk. That will encourage some of you, and I think that will terrify uh, and confuse others. But God doesn't just have a preference for starting with the little people or the despised part of town. I think He also has a habit of working in ways that challenge the walls and the legalistic boundaries that the that the religious elites and powerful tend to set up and fixate on. The great irony, I think, of that negative interpretation of the, of the leaven that I, that I shared just before um, is that it stamps its feet with that same sort of indignation um, that the leader of the synagogue showed. They declare Jesus would never use leaven as a metaphor in a parable because leaven's a bad thing. Just as the leader of the synagogue said, healing should never happen on the Sabbath. And just as the Pharisees said disgustingly, he eats with sinners and tax collectors. And just as Simon thought, clearly Jesus has no idea that the woman who's washing his feet is a prostitute. And just as the religious leaders balked at Jesus using Samaritans uh, as exemplary people. I think where the, where the, where the religious elites um, and, and the good Christians, the pastors, uh, the morally righteous stand sort of huffing and puffing and condemning society from a distance... Jesus goes forward and embraces the sinners. He embraces the tax collectors, uh, the prostitutes, the lady considering an abortion, the person of a non-heterosexual orientation, the refugee, the Muslim. He doesn't stand and condemn, he steps forward and embraces. If you were to contextualise the story of the Samaritan, who would they be in our culture, do you think? What would be the, the current equivalent of healing on the Sabbath? in the Australian Christian culture? Would it be something like regularly skipping the Sunday service to go drink beer with a lonely friend? What would be the current equivalent of using leaven as an exemplary item in the Christian, in the Australian Christian uh, culture? Would it be something like drawing lessons from the rainbow flag, the pride flag, 
I don't know. But I do know that this story uh, and these parables warn us against holding our religious cultural norms so tightly that we miss the restorative nature of the kingdom of God when it's happening right underneath our nose. And that's the thing, the kingdom of God doesn't just start in unexpected places with people we, adv- we would avoid, it also works in pretty unusual ways. The kingdom of God, says Jesus, <coughs> starts off like the inconsequential mustard seed, a tiny little seed that no one cares about. But somehow, over a period of time, it morphs into this, this large tree or this large shrub that resembles nothing of the place where it started. The kingdom of God isn't Alexander the Great with a strategy and a strong military might. It doesn't spread Christianity the way that Constantine did or the Spanish Inquisition with power, political power or military power. No, it starts in unusual places with unusual people and and it slowly, slowly, painfully slowly turns mustard seeds into trees. There's no big bang, there's no fireworks, Uh, or a colourful campaign. The mustard seed doesn't become a tree because the head office in Sydney told it to um, or because the program was so cleverly designed with clear inputs and outputs. It starts with a burial of the seed and Paul talks about that. Unless the seed dies and falls to the ground, it can't grow up into a tree. But it morphs from a seed to a seedling to a bush to a tree and the fruits tell us what type of tree it is. It's not because they're all mustard seeds that look ident- mustard plants that look identical. It works in unusual ways. And it doesn't just work in unusual ways. The kingdom of God is like that small batch of leaven that permeates the whole dough. It's not centralized in Rome or somewhere else, but it work- it, but it's worked deeply into the social fabric of the city where it lives. And like the leaven, you probably wouldn't actually know that it's there other than the fact that there's some movement in the dough and that it shapes and flavours the dough, ultimately causing it to rise. The Kingdom of God doesn't need to have a denominational stamp on something. It doesn't need everyone to know that this particular activity is run by this particular Christian community. That's an unusual methodology in our culture, I think, in our Christian culture, and our culture more broadly, I suppose, because we tend to relish control and we relish centralised, top-down structures that have measurable outcomes. And our churches, I think, often look more like the dominant culture's methodology uh, for change than the Kingdom of God's approach, at least if you're looking at it from these parables. Notice, says Jesus, that the Kingdom of God is like leaven, like yeast that permeates the whole dough that slowly changes things in often unexplainable and hidden, in hidden ways. I mean, how does a seed become a tree? What bit of dough is, leaven, is the leaven bit once you've got the bread? You can't explain those things, you can't point them out, you can't break it down. Maybe we need to be asking ourselves whether our approach to sharing the good news of Jesus in all of its various expressions is patterned along the lines of mustard seed and yeast or the business model that our dominant culture sort of prefers. And doesn't <coughs> the Kingdom of God doesn't only start in unusual places with unusual people, using unusual methods, but it also produces unexpected outcomes a lot of the time. Um, What I think is fascinating, or something I found fascinating about both of these parables, um, is the way in which both the mustard seed and the leaven, or the yeast, whatever you want to call it, are significantly changed through the whole process. Um, As I already said, the tree looks nothing like the mustard seed that it started out as. 
And in a similar way, the leaven in the dough doesn't end up, you don't end up when you're baking bread, you don't, the goal isn't to have a loaf of leaven, it's to have a loaf of bread. Um, and so in that process, the mustard seed can't remain a seed if it's going to become a tree. The leaven can't remain leaven if, if, if it's going to raise and shape the dough. The leader of the synagogue, the religious elites, and I think we tend to do the same thing, is we think that the kingdom of God is just getting people to do prescribed behaviours. So do these good behaviours and avoid these behaviours. Uh, and so we build rules and walls around the bad behaviours and we encourage people towards the good behaviours. And while it all has neat inputs and outputs, um, it, it doesn't... Oh, sorry, yeah... But in evaluate, when Jesus looked at that and evaluated that approach, he said, um, you've, you've actually forgotten, you're really good at tithing your mint and dill, but you've forgotten the weightier matters of the law, the love and the justice and the mercy, which is why he was standing there getting all indignant about, about this healing that had happened on the Sabbath and couldn't see the beautiful thing that had happened in front of his eyes. The difference between that legalistic sort of approach and the kingdom of God is that the, the legalistic approach only ever really changes external behaviour. It rarely changes hearts. But through the actions of attempting to love my neighbour, in attempting to care for creation, in attempting to love God, um, through the multitude of ways that these can be attempted in our society, my heart and my person also get changed in the process. I don't know if you've experienced that, but I certainly have. When I attempt mercy, justice, love and compassion for, for people or for the environment or for God. When I attempt these things, they don't just change the recipients of my love, they often end up changing me at the same time. Mustard seeds properly planted change into trees. Leaven or yeast properly worked through the dough becomes bread with the rest of it. It's not just the big bad world out there that needs the impact of the Kingdom of God, it's also the big bad world on the inside of me that needs changing. And God does this crazily dangerous, risky thing where He invites us, while we're still broken, to participate in the res restoration of everything. And in that, through that process, He also restores us at the same time. And so I want to close with a warning, an encouragement and a reminder. The book of James um, warns us against saying, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money. Um, and he says, but you don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. So how are you coming up with a plan like that? And I think these, I feel like these parables sort of extend that warning uh, to our plans and our goals as churches and Christian communities. Don't say, and here I'm plagiarising, just so you know. Do not say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there planting churches and making converts because you don't even know what God will bring. If the Kingdom of God is like an insignificant mustard seed that turns into a tree, and if the Kingdom of God is like despised leaven that, that permeates uh, the whole loaf, then I think be wary about making clear and powerful plans about what you're going to do to extend the Kingdom of God. You don't actually know what mustard seeds God will use. You have no idea what they'll turn out to be. Uh, you can't measure leaven once it's mixed through the dough. You can't set goals for how much leaven there will be in the dough two hours into the rise. You can't predict the weather or the soil patterns that are going to shape the mustard seed. By all means, make plans. I'm not saying don't do that. But hold them lightly enough that when an elderly woman is, is healed on a proverbial Sabbath in front of your eyes, you don't flip out and condemn it. 
That's the warning. Now your encouragement. Uh, your insignificance is significant in the kingdom of God. Um, your weaknesses, the things that would get you picked last in the team or get you sidelined, actually make you a perfect candidate for God to work through you in the kingdom of God. It makes you a perfect candidate for God to do great, hidden, powerful, small, massive things. Uh, it's imperative, I think, that we hear this story regularly because our world operates on, on the opposite paradigm. The very thing that people will despise you for, whether it's known or unknown, whether it's out there or hidden inner things, these very things can be used, be used powerfully by God. Not, not in big televangelist ways necessarily, but in powerful kingdom of God type ways. So don't be discouraged by your weaknesses, whether they're spiritual, physical or or mental. It's when you're weak, says Paul, that's when you're strong. That's when God's able to use you. And I don't know about you, but I find it hard to remember that and to actually try to live out that, that paradigm because I tend to want to flick straight back to the other, the other, other way. And so lastly, <coughs> I'll finish with this reminder. Um, I think it's Paul <laughs> who wrote this. Steve, you can correct me. Neither he who, nor, ne- neither he who waters nor he who plants is anything but it's God who gives the growth. Um, the mustard seed can't claim that it's done great and marvellous things uh, to become a tree because it needed the soil and it needed the water and it needed the sun and the temperature without which it would have been nothing, it would have just remained a seed. Um, likewise, the leaven can't boast about the change that it's made. We can't boast about the change we make in society because it's only by being mixed with the flour and the water in the warmth of the room that the dough can rise. Um, God can use our failings and our weaknesses for good. He can do great things with them uh, and He wants to. And He says the harvest is big uh, but the labour is a few. But ultimately it's, it's God, it's the Spirit who gives the growth. It's only the Spirit who can bring those ingredients together in the right proportions and the right mix um, to make the change. So don't boast when you see the Kingdom of God uh, working in strange or unexpected ways in your life. Um, don't boast, just give thanks for the beauty that you're allowed to be a part of because I think it's pretty awesome when you get to see those things. Um, maybe, I, can I just pray for us? And then we'll do something else. Then we'll sing, I believe. Dear God, um, thank you for these two short parables. Um, Yeah, just thank you for the reminder um, that you work in unusual ways uh, with, the pe- with the people and situations that we would tend to write off or choose last. Um, yeah, I'm sorry for the times when I run along the paradigm that our world runs on, Lord, when I aim for, for power um, or when I, I try to just work with people who are strong or have got, who I think have got great talent or potential, Lord. Um, I pray that, um, yeah, that you'd show us the crazy ways that you are working in our society. Um, I pray that you would encourage um, us through our brokenness um, that you can do great things through us. Um, And I pray that you'd keep us reminded of where we came from um, so that we'd that we wouldn't boast, but we're, our boast would be in you and the stuff that you're doing around us, Lord. I pray that you would um, 
lead us and guide us into, into unusual settings um, and situations where, where we can see you at work and where we can be a part of you uh, working in our world. I pray that you'd help us to see the fruit of what you're doing uh, in our world um, so that we'd be encouraged by it um, and we just really want to see the world restored to, to live along your lines to the kingdom of God. Um, so, yeah, thank you for these parables this morning and I pray that, that they'd be good for us. Um, in Jesus' name, amen.